0: Hi, listeners. This episode of She Does is brought to you by CardsDirect.com. With over 5,000 cards to choose from, you can design the perfect holiday cards with CardsDirect.com. The holidays are just a few weeks away, so create your cards today. Plus, save 25% off at checkout when you visit CardsDirect.com slash She Does.
1: Also, have you heard The Message? It's an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes.
0: Oh, and just so you know, today's guest has the mouth of a sailor, so if there's kids around, maybe just listen to it later. All right, let's get started.
2: there's all this talk about like the male gaze and how men are inherently objectifying, but actually artists are objectifying, male, female, all of us, we're all, it's just something inherent to how we view things. Like if I was drawing you right now, I would be breaking your nose down to planes and angles right now. It would like no longer be the thing on your face that you breathe through, it would be like my planes and angles that I was putting down on the page. It's this very like weird, objectifying, intensely looking conversion of who people are into images that we make and then put on paper. There is, is something taking about art. Artists are quite vampiric by nature, actually.
1: Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And today, we'd like to introduce you to artist, illustrator, and writer, Molly Crabapple. She's the contributing editor for Vice and has written for The New York Times, The Paris Review, Vanity Fair, The Guardian, Newsweek, among many other major publications. This will be our final full episode
0: of this year. But we wouldn't leave you with that one last parting gift a music maker episode next week with Cécile Schott, French composer and accomplished musician who makes work under the name Colleen. Our guest today, Molly Crabapple, has written and illustrated stories for journalistic publications about Guantanamo Bay, the prison system, issues sex workers face, and civil liberties of Muslims in the U.S., among many
1: other topics. She's won many awards and accolades, including the Yale Pointer Fellowship, a front page award and a 2014 Gold Rush Award. She was shortlisted for a 2013 Frontline Print Journalism Award for her internationally acclaimed reporting on Guantanamo. But she has also created a life for herself that revolves around art, with some of her work featured in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art.
0: Molly is the illustrator of Matt Taibbi's New York Times bestseller, The Divide. She's collaborated with Spike Jones to create backdrops for the 2013 YouTube Music Video Awards, and with Esperanza Spalding on projections for her concerts. Molly's story is intricate and unconventional, taking place all over the world with a colorful cast of characters, beautifully assembled in her memoir, Drawing Blood, which is officially being released into the world today. And we were lucky enough to have her live read three passages, which you'll hear parts of in today's episode. I hated doing a memoir. I hate talking about my memoir.
2: I um, I've done so much of my work based on other people's lives. I don't do self portraits usually, and everything. And I feel like I fucking like ripped my guts open and like tried to smear them into an aesthetically pleasing pattern. I just hope it sells well enough so I can do another book about something that's not me.
1: How did if you didn't want to do the memoir? Like, oh, is this is, this, is are, are we
2: on or are we off? Yeah,
1: we are on. But <laughs> okay.
2: I didn't think it would be so hard. You know, I was writing all these personal essays for Vice. I wrote about my abortion. I wrote about turning 30. But there was something totally different between writing about a discrete thing that happened to you and using it as a jumping off point for larger questions and taking your entire life and fitting it into a narrative, right? Going back over every single failure and breakup and saying, was I wrong? Was I right? Reading your old emails. You're always such a jerk when you read your old emails. I I spent so much time looking at emails of some of the most intense moments of my life and trying to authentically get what the emotions were like during that moment.
1: The details in Molly's memoir, and in all of her writing, are so vivid. She builds colorful scenes of her travels across Europe and Morocco, with the tiniest of elements.
0: Many of us probably wouldn't be able to recall these details, or at least enough of them to fill a memoir. But Molly is able to because she's always kept very, very detailed diaries that are also sketchbooks.
2: Because I am an artist, I have very vivid sense memory. Like I still remember the exact gesture that that kid used to hold the teapot really high and pour this long string of mint tea into the cup. So yeah, it's, it's very strange. I I feel like I took my 20s and I I locked them up into a box like Dana and I sent it off into the ocean.
1: The title of Molly's memoir, Drawing Blood, is a dual play on the things she experiences as a journalist and an artist.
2: First off, because I, I draw, right now I draw conflict zones, among other things, I draw prisons. But also because when you do a memoir, that's always what you're doing. You're taking yourself, you're cutting yourself open, you're taking your guts and you're arranging them into a pretty pattern so that other people can look at them and admire and say, oh, what, what pretty guts.
0: Molly invited Elaine and I up into her lower Manhattan apartment, adorned with ornate lamps and tables, Victorian-style furniture upholstered in velvet.
1: It almost felt like we were inside one of her paintings. And we kind of were. Molly's art lined the walls, some canvases reaching the ceiling of her tall but narrow apartment. Molly
0: is from New York, but not Manhattan. She grew up in Queens and Long Island, with both of her parents until she was seven, when they got a divorce. The art gene and avant-garde lifestyle comes from her mom's side of the family a few generations back.
2: My great-grandfather, Sam Rothbard was an artist. He was also a communist, had a very, very eccentric view of religion. He was a vegetarian in the 1930s when not a lot of people were vegetarians. So he was sort of this like pacifist, anarchic, proto-hippie. And he was an artist who believed in drawing things every single day. So I grew up into a family where that was built into the mythos of it, that art was just something you did, art was in your blood. My mother is an amazing illustrator. Uh, She worked as an illustrator all of her life up until pretty recently. And because of that, I always saw art as something that adults did. It was something prosaic. It wasn't like a lot of children have this struggle where they want to be an artist and their parents are like, oh, do something practical like accounting. Whereas I was like, I want to be an artist. And my mom's like, okay, you can get a job in a studio doing that. You know, make about $40,000 a year like I do. You know, it's great. So I, I always, thought of being an artist just as a trade you know it was it was a almost a you know a skilled craftsman type thing rather than this high ambition that wasn't something that I could do
1: politics and class are all across Molly's work which we can probably attribute to her father and his side of the family who came to New York from Puerto Rico Molly's father was a professor of Latin American studies and also a Marxist who worked hard to instill in Molly starting at a young age a certain way of viewing the world
2: I remember when, I guess I'm seven or eight, he has like a hammer and he's like, you know, this Linda, he calls me Linda, it's pretty in Spanish. Linda, this this hammer, like it doesn't just drop from a fucking tree, you know, people make it. And how does this hammer get made, right? Well, there's a factory and the factory has an owner and people, they work in the factory and they produce a certain amount of value and then the raw materials have a certain amount of value, which of course, you know, has the added value of the people who harvested them or mined them. And then that value, that the people make is always less than the value that they're compensated because if they weren't compensated less than the value they made, then there would be no profit for the owner. And he got me to look at objects like that and to look at things like that. and It it kind of was something that always stuck with me and I think it was just a very uh, good training and way to view the world.
1: Molly hated being a kid. She talks a lot about this in her memoir, calling it age dysmorphia. She graduated from high school six months early and planned to attend FIT in the fall semester. But while all of her peers were still in school, Molly escaped to Paris, paying for the flight with the money her grandfather had given her for college. Her adventure began at Shakespeare and Company, a historical bookstore in the heart of the city.
2: And Shakespeare and Company was paradise, right? It was this bookstore that had been around since the 1950s that was founded by this man named George Whitman, where you could work incompetently an hour or two every day in return for a bed in between the books in the center of Paris. It was old and it was magical and Lawrence Ferlinghetti had stayed there, Anaïs Nin had stayed there, it had a cherry tree out front, it had people from all over the world. And when I was 17, I was just sitting in front of the stores before it opened, drawing like I always did, because I always draw to get attention. And George came up to me and he asked me to stay there. And with that, my life changed. Because that was my first way of seeing something that was utterly outside of the world that I had known it. I was like, there's a bookstore where you could live there? In a bookstore? And there are people from all over the world and you could be friends with them and be around all of these artists? And all you have to do is like sit at a cash register for an hour a day? What is this, what is this paradise? This is like nothing like I'd ever seen. By saying yes to him and by him making me that offer... I got to see that the world was a lot bigger and looser than I had ever imagined.
0: Molly traveled all over Europe and Morocco, meeting people and sketching everywhere she went. She went back to New York for school, but returned to Paris during school breaks. The bookstore was her home base, and from there, she ventured out into the world.
1: She felt free, no longer confined by school, by life at home, or by age. And she felt free to draw coming to understand the power of her medium and her ability to capture somebody. Nobody could stop her from drawing, whereas photography isn't always allowed because it's seen as evidence or a rigid form of documentation in a way that illustration very often isn't.
2: So there's all this talk about like the male gaze and how men are inherently objectifying, but actually artists are objectifying, male, female, all of us. We're all it's just something inherent to how we view things. Like if I was drawing you right now, I would be, be I'd be breaking your nose down to planes and angles right now. It would like no longer be the thing on your face that you breathe through. It would be like my planes and angles that I was putting down on the page. It's this very like weird, objectifying, um, like intensely looking conversion of who people are into images that we make and then put on paper so yeah, there always is there always is something taking about art. Artists are quite vampiric by nature, actually. In 2013,
1: Molly traveled to Guantanamo Bay detention camp to research the story of a wrongly imprisoned man for vice.
2: I went to Guantanamo with a notebook and I have like three different shades of brown markers, a number of different like little pilot pens and stuff. And I draw really fast when I'm in the field. I learned to draw fast because I drew in nightclubs. And it's something that serves me very, very well now. I can draw a scene in five minutes. I can draw like a little scene in maybe two or three minutes. And my hands fly when I do it. She was given special
0: access to people and locations while at Guantanamo, and found herself in the courtroom for the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the man widely known as the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks. She writes of this strange experience in her memoir.
2: I was drawing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I sat in the courtroom at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, watching a pretrial hearing for the 9-11 Military Commission in a room bisected by three layers of soundproof glass. On one side sat a few dozen legal observers and journalists, minded by soldiers. On the other, the tribunal hashed out a new Orwellian form of law. We listened to the proceedings through a time-delayed video controlled by the CIA. One woman, whose husband had burned alive in the towers, sat in the front row. Holding her husband's photo, she tried unsuccessfully to meet Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's eyes. The court took a break. Through the glass, I stared at the alleged mastermind of 9-11 as he chatted with his co-defendants. With fruit juice, he dyed his beard an implausible orange. He wore a camouflage hunting vest that accentuated his paunch. I sketched frantically, pen held between my teeth. You're the man who bombed my city, I thought. You beheaded Daniel Pearl. The American government kidnapped you, tortured you, and drowned you till near death. Now you're in this prison, filled with innocent men, being used as its excuse. I was in Guantanamo Bay researching the story of one such wrongly imprisoned man. It was easiest to visit the base during a military commission, so Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's trial was a good excuse for being there. But during the commissions, Guantanamo forbade members of the press to see the prisons themselves. So instead, I sat in the courtroom, drawing KSM because he was there. It's a strange kind of disassociation, to stare into another's eyes only to make those eyes into shapes on paper. To draw is to objectify, to go momentarily to a place where aesthetics mean more than morality. I shaded the alleged murderer's brow bone. I rendered the curls of his beard so they would fall across the page in an interesting sweep. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed smirked at me through the glass. I'm watching you like a zoo animal, I thought. You wanna watch me back? Fair enough. I turned the page, switched my markers, and started another sketch. During my seven days at Guantanamo, the prison kept us from seeing any detainees besides the 9-11 co-defendants. The other men, 152 in all, remained entombed in Camps 5 and 6. The military press officers were forbidden to speak their names. These prisoners' absence hung heavier than any presence could. I drew compulsively, hoping that sketches of Gitmo's facilities would serve a purpose something like the chalk outlines of bodies at a crime scene, delineating the space around what was lost. I drew signs flaunting the base's motto, honor bound to defend freedom. Guantanamo is built on erasure, but art is a slippery thing. The prison may have had guns, razor wire, and oceans of redactors ink, but I had pictures. By the end of the week, I'd filled two sketchbooks. With each brushstroke, I thought about drawing the man back into existence. When you take a photo, you're at the mercy of what's in front of you. When you draw, you have all of your memory, you have all of your imagination, you have everything to go from. You can edit, you can add, you can subtract. When I was in Guantanamo Bay, I was at an extreme advantage to photographers because in Guantanamo they have these rules called OPSEC that make taking a photo like playing a game of Twister they'll say, you can't have anyone's faces, you can't have two doors, you can't have cameras, you cannot have two buildings, and on and on. So before you know it, you're basically just taking photos of the floor, which is why there are so few good photos of Guantanamo Bay. And they would go through people's cameras at the end of every day and delete everything they didn't like. Whereas, because I was an artist rather than a photographer, if they said, you can't have anyone's faces, I would just give the guards blank smile masks. It's a way of drawing around censorship, The Gitmo press office was not happy about the
0: final piece published on Vice. They were angry, and the head of PR for the prison wrote Vice a letter stating that Molly made him look like a tool. A tool.
2: Maybe he was a tool. (laughs) He was was doing PR for Guantanamo Bay Prison. (laughs) It
0: was the early 2000s, and Molly was broke and still in school at FIT. Though she tried, she wasn't making money as an artist. So she posed as an artist model, but soon realized she could make more money being an internet model.
2: I wasn't like a cool, glamorous naked model for Playboy, because that's a totally different thing. What I was actually doing was amateur photographers would pay me 100 bucks an hour to show up at their hotel room and get naked. And the photos weren't really the point. That's the most important thing. The point was that they wanted a naked girl in their hotel room, but they didn't want to think they were the type of guy that would hire a naked girl. So they wanted both to have the naked girl, see the pretty girl, but also to get the emotional experience of being an artist to think that they were, you know, something something above the type of person who might hire a private stripper. Once you do a job that's in the sex industry, and even if it's a totally legal job, there's nothing banned about this, you give away your good girl privilege. You give away the notion that, like, police might protect you, that um, men might trust you. You give away the crumbs that patriarchy gives to you if you conform to their notions of a good woman. So because of that, how, how do you protect yourself? And one of the real things is women uh, sharing information with each other. Women saying like who's good guy, who's bad guy, who is like grabby, who is scary, who is nice, you know, how, how is this gonna work? The other thing is mainstream American society sets up women to fight with each other. It sets up women to compete with each other. It sets up women To believe a particularly pernicious lie, which is that if you're beautiful, that good things will come to you, and especially that men's love will come to you. Um, And that the level of beauty that you have to have to be loved is a standard of beauty that's almost equivalent to being an Olympian athlete, you know, like an Angelina Jolie, a Beyonce standard of beauty, you know. And that's such, it's such bullshit. And when you work in the sex industry, one of the things that you realize is that the diversity of body types and of women that men desire, and that men really desire like enough to, you know, to pay money for is so much wider than Hollywood or than the mainstream media would ever allow you to believe.
0: Can you talk a lot about this idea of the power that beauty, the power that you have, if you are aware of the situation you're in, to use to get to a place where you don't need that? Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm fascinated by that idea.
2: So the one power that um, women well there are a few powers that women are permitted in a traditional patriarchal society, but one of them is being beautiful. The other one's being a mother. This, This is this is the sort of power that you're permitted, that you're beautiful, that you're sexy, that people want you. This is a very limited thing. The person who's doing the wanting has the real has the real power. Yeah. But when you're young and especially if you're broke, especially if you don't go to a good school, especially if you don't have a fancy family, you don't have a lot of other things to offer the world as trading tokens. I mean, you might be like a brilliant person, you might have so much bravery and ambition and fire in you, but the world just doesn't give you a lot of chance to show that off. So one of the things that beauty did for me and that beauty did for a lot of young women that I knew is it gave us a way to get capital that allowed us to express our other talents.
1: Molly has since published work that explores the abuses that women in the sex industry face. And it's this first-hand experience that she has that makes it so powerful. She's been there. She knows what can happen and what does happen.
0: Just before dropping out of FIT, Molly had an abortion. It was a dark time for her, one that made her think about the systems in place in modern-day American society. She received the abortion in the early 2000s, but in April of 2013, she wrote a piece for Vice about her experience. This is just one of the examples of how she's opened up otherwise taboo conversations.
2: Well, the abortion conversation was especially important to me because I uh, dealt with my own abortion in such a irrational and psychologically unhealthy way is how I would put it where while I was utterly unconflicted about having an abortion I really blamed myself for being this in in my this is me speaking about in my mind then when I was ne- when I was 20 I blamed myself for being a sort of dumb woman who gets pregnant and you know aren't I educated blah blah, blah. and so I I had absorbed this like really nasty training and so I was I was vicious to myself you know, when when I had an abortion, at the same time I knew that one out of three American women have abortions. And I got really angry that there wasn't um, really a space where we could speak about the reality of this, even if we could speak about the reality of it as in terms of the reality that invasive medical procedures of all types are really shitty and very often might leave you with bad feelings about your bodily integrity. In the defense of abortion in America, very few people have said, women should have the right to abortion because it's your own damn body and if you don't want to be a mother then that's fine you know it's, it's your own damn body instead uh, the discourse has very often been around what if it's a 14 year old who's been raped what if it is uh, someone who ha- is carrying a fetus with a severe disability it's it's been really around these edge cases which you know are very valid too but they're they're not the the experience of most women having abortions Cosette and I sat in Lit, an East Village dive bar with a gallery in the back. I was sandwiched between an art journalist and Louis, a curator I wanted to work with. Cosette massaged the journalist's knee. The bar was blood dark, the walls covered with graffiti and band stickers glazed with beer. I couldn't hear anything over the music. I wanted desperately to leave. It's good for my career to be friendly with these people, I told myself, smiling hard. If I can just sit close enough, long enough, if I can tolerate enough of these nights, eventually they'll like me enough to put me in shows. I forced myself to stay. Cosette cut me with her brilliance. The eyes she painted were gray, clear, and bloodshot. I could fall through the wood panel into her world. But for women, talent was never enough. Cosette had talent, but she got most of her shows by charming people. I felt neither brilliant nor charming, No matter how long I worked on a piece, I saw only my defects. The cartoon lines, the hands like flippers. Every time someone insulted my work, the words looped in my brain. I kept drawing anyway. But now I knew I had no other choice. But if I wanted to keep making art, I had to win the favor of the gatekeepers of this world, like the one who was sitting next to me. How do people do this? I thought. What do you say? Did you see the John John Desi show? I screamed. Louis moved closer to me. My heart leapt, a month before he'd put me in a big group exhibit upstate, but my piece hadn't sold. Maybe, if we could talk like humans tonight, I could redeem myself. I have a question, Louis said. He wants to know about my art. I'm going to get a solo show. I'll quit modeling and draw full-time, and curators won't snicker that I'm a whore. I will be famous. Are your tits real? Because everyone says they're fake, he said. I forced myself to laugh. When you're 30, he continued, you'll be really ugly. Your boyfriend will leave you, but I'd still fuck you. I tried to smile again. I wanted to look chill. I wanted to be the cool girl who could take a joke just right. Cool girls get shows. Uptight bitches don't. I would never get a show by telling a curator to stop talking about my tits. I inched towards Cosette. I didn't want to sleep with him, but it might hurt me more if I didn't. If you reject a powerful man, you can end up blacklisted. The man wouldn't see it like that, of course. He'd just feel awkward and stop inviting you to important parties, and then where would you be? Better force a smile, save the hate for later.
0: In the years after dropping out of school, Molly continued modeling, burlesque dancing, and sketching, trying to get her art out there. She says each one fueled the other, and she grew stronger in all areas of her life. This is when she gave herself her name, Molly Crabapple, before it
1: had been Jennifer. Molly began to build her life. She created a live drawing workshop called Dr. Sketchy's Anti-Art School. She got involved with the Occupy movement, which is when, she says, is what really made her start writing seriously. And her life is truly fascinating. You can read all the twists and turns in her memoir.
0: But at this point in her story, around 2012, Molly had broken ground, no longer an uncomfortable kid waiting around for adulthood.
2: I think I was a lot angrier and I was a lot more helpless. I think because I was more helpless, I was more angry. I always think of this especially, like, in regards to street harassment. My tits came in kind of early, I guess, when I was, God, I was, like, 11 or 10. And basically, since I developed, guys harassed me on the street. And a lot of it was, like, really nasty. It was not, it was not like, oh, you're beautiful. It was, like, really kind of gross. Then, like, when I would travel around in Europe, I mean, people would follow me. They would grab me. I mean, it was, it was like, awful, you know? I always felt like I was walking a gauntlet. Uh, I was always, like, kind of twitchy. Like, if someone came up to me and wanted to talk to me, I would give them a death look because you know, i just i was so guarded right but i also felt constantly helpless and now i don't know what it is in particular but i don't get street harassed anymore really i and if i do it's you're looking beautiful today ma'am which is totally innocuous and something i'm fine with and i think because i became more comfortable in my own skin and i i learned sort of to navigate the world better i didn't get this like constant stream of bullshit and because I didn't get this constant stream of bullshit I got to be a more relaxed and empathetic person and I didn't view every single person who came up to me on the street as like a threat who wanted to grab my ass. When I was um, young and when I felt kind of really really helpless and under threat and I developed this giant chip on my shoulder to deal with that these two things fed into each other whereas now because I have a position of a lot more power in the world and because people just don't fuck with me in the same way I get to be a nicer human being If I didn't have that sort of jaggedness and hardness when I was young, I don't think I would have gotten into the position that I did later. I think sometimes the chip on your shoulder can turn into diamond.
1: And now let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Deck the halls this year with custom holiday cards from CardsDirect.com. Whether it's for your family or business, CardsDirect.com has you covered with traditional and corporate cards and a variety of unique printing formats. You can add a photo, logo, or a custom message. And with over 5,000 cards to choose from, you're sure to create the perfect holiday cards. Plus, with express shipping, they'll be here quick, like the holidays. She Does listeners will save an extra 25% off at CardsDirect.com slash She Does. Don't wait. Christmas is only three weeks away. Visit CardsDirect.com slash she does.
0: Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now...
1: Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing.
0: To sum it up... Extraterrestrials. Subscribe to the message on iTunes.
1: Where is the line for you between uh, your work in journalism and your work in art? Because uh, th- I love the piece in your book where you have the meeting with the Times Magazine guy, yeah. and he says he—I remember what he says—but basically that we don't do this type of work. And now you know you have yeah. a column for Vice, and like you're doing and I've worked work that for the has, Times, yeah, yeah, and you're doing work that has very much, like, journalism ethics, like, behind it. Like, the prison stuff. Like, that stuff is really important for journalism, and not many journalists are doing it. Where do you bring art into journalism, and journalism into art, and how How do you feel about
2: that? I feel really lucky. Um, the stuff that I showed to The New York Times when I was 19 was frankly bad. I I'm, I'm not even gonna blame the guy. Like, it was, it was pretty crappy. Sometimes I look at my old stuff and I think, how did anyone ever hire me? <laughs> But now, I guess I try to use my sketchbook like a photojournalist might use their camera. Except that when you're doing drawings as opposed to photos, there um, isn't the pretense of objectivity, so I'm allowed to take liberties that a photojournalist wouldn't. When people look at my work, they, they, they know that I change the colors and because people don't have green skin. It, you know, it's, There's just a, a freedom that I have because drawing is not an objective medium. Right. But it, it's still important that it's communicating truth exactly yeah no I don't I don't make anything up but I have more freedom I have more freedom to uh, present what I see in an aestheticized way is the best way to put it yeah. which do you think allows the audience to
1: I mean I feel like we're so desensitized to photographs I really do I, I think that we can see a lot of things and sometimes a drawing will make you stop maybe sometimes a thing. I mean
2: photographs can do it too but do you think that absolutely I have a really tight collaboration with this uh, Syrian writer Marwan Hisham and we published a piece on Vanity Fair together where he wrote this beautiful essay about going to college in Aleppo and then going back going back to Aleppo a few years afterwards, uh, you, know, during, you know, during the height of barrel bombing and all of the horrible things there. And he sent me tons, hundreds of photos uh, from Aleppo, uh, some of which were fucking horrific uh, of bombings and stuff. And I, I drew from them. And the idea was that there's so much cell phone footage coming out of Syria, so much, and people are so numb to it. And I wanted to indicate in the most visceral way, like, this is worth looking at, this is spending time with, because I obviously spent time with it, because look, I fucking drew it. I mean, I spent like nine hours drawing this scene thing of one image. And as a way of almost telegraphing care. You had previously said that
1: as long as the marginalized communities that you're drawing don't think you're full of shit, then- Yeah,
2: I've done success.
1: At this point in her career, Molly is established and confident in her role as both an illustrator and writer, often taking assignments that allow her to wear both hats. A lot of the work she does is for Vice, which gets her great access to underdocumented places and stories, but depending on where they send her, she must adapt her approach to the authorities' rules. In restricted places, other than Guantanamo, she usually uses her iPhone to take thousands of photos for reference. She takes them home, looks through them, and asks herself,
2: what are the images I want to get here? What were the scenes that stuck with me in particular? Or sometimes
0: she'll just arrive somewhere, like this summer, when she visited the Shujaya neighborhood in Palestine's
2: Gaza City. And I'm thinking, like, do I want to draw the El Wafa hospital? Because it's really fucked up that the Israelis bombed a hospital. But maybe I want to draw these like kids playing here. Or maybe I want to draw this guy, you know, standing in the shell of his bulldozed home. Like, what do I want to draw? What, what sums this up? And I sort of make a list. And then, uh, in terms of materials, I use these Arches watercolour blocks that are kind of pre-stretched and the ends are all glued together. I do really loose pencil sketches that no one else could decipher except me. They're the equivalent of shorthand, basically. Then I have these, like, super, super, super fine Japanese nibs and I start sketching in coloured ink now, usually. And I think, like, what's going to be the warm, what's going to be the cool? Very often I just start splashing ink on the page. I dry it with a hairdryer, and I work, and I work, and I build it up. And it takes, like, five hours to do, like, a pen and ink that's 10 by 13.
1: Molly's other recent pieces for Vice have covered the Dallas Six, a group of inmates who are risking their own potential, or maybe eventual, freedom by speaking out about the prison's abusive conditions.
0: She illustrated and wrote about the refugee crisis after the Paris and Beirut attacks, stating, citizenship is our most loaded form of
1: fiction. Molly did another piece for Vice on the military barriers, fences, and checkpoints imposed upon the people of Hebron, the largest city in the West Bank.
2: How do you choose the medium that you work in? How do you know that the story is right for that medium? You know, very often it's just the parameters of something. For instance, a few months ago, I did murals all over this library at a school for Syrian refugee kids on the Turkish-Syrian border. And with something like that, I mean, obviously I'm going to do a big-ass mural. It's just, that just, it just lends itself to that. Whereas with Fusion, we had the idea that they wanted to do video, and I was thinking, what can I do video on that it makes sense to do an animation about? Because I don't just want to draw for its own sake, though I like that, but I also want to draw in a way that does something that photography or video can't. And I thought, what if I do stuff about prison? Because prison is so censored in America, and there aren't a lot of good photos, you're not usually allowed to take videos in, and if you do take videos in, it's sort of bullshit Potemkin tour type thing. So I did a series of these five, um, what do I call them, like animated stop motion essays, about various aspects of prison and policing in America. On March 31st, 2015, 80 mothers announced a hunger and work strike. They were undocumented migrants, imprisoned with their children, some for up to 10 months. This series is a
1: collaboration between Molly, cinematographer Burke Hefner, and director Jim Batt, and is published by Fusion, a multi-platform media company that focuses on original reporting for young viewers.
2: In many cities, people arrested as prostitutes have their mugshots and names posted
0: online. Accompanying the narration, each short film is a stop-motion animation of Molly's hands illustrating the scene. We watch a blank canvas filled with faces, which then become covered by bars or black ink, and then ripped away to start with a new blank slate.
2: Banning prostitution just enables violence from prisons and from police.
1: I had read stories about the prison system before and the abuse within them, but seeing this illustrated by someone's hands and seeing it live and seeing the raw talent mixed with the incredible abuse was really captivating. Are there other mediums that you haven't worked in yet that you would like to explore? I want to do
2: stage design someday. I have an obsession with Picasso's work with the Ballet Russe, and my, my dream would be to do that. I did a giant fucking theatrical curtain once when I was working for the box and when I saw that in practice I was just like my god my heart my heart pounded hard what was it what was it about that it's the scale it's when things are big they have a power because there's two different ways you can interact with a drawing when it's little you choose whether or not you look at it you're like am I going to go up to this am I going to consult it and if it's big you don't choose you're just you know it consumes you
0: and the way that it maybe even moves or looks from different angles there's just more chance for perspective, different perspectives.
2: Exactly, exactly. And especially when you're doing theatrical stuff, because you have to think about how the performers are going to look in front of it. I've always been so, so inspired by circus performers, by drag queens, by underground performers in general. And seeing like acrobats in front of my work is the coolest thing ever. A naked woman spun on a hoop above the bar, lounging like the girl on the moon. Then fast, she flipped and hung from one muscular thigh, When a customer looked down at his phone, she swiped his $25 drink. Then she raved herself up, sipped the drink, candlelight soft on her bald head. She smirked. This nightclub meant war, class war. The bar, however, was only for peasants and cattle. You needed to get to the front. Luca guarded the second barrier. He was so tall, so square of jaw and plush of lip that it was hard to look at him, but you brazened it out anyway with all the entitlement you didn't have. Maybe there is space for you. There were two tables in the center lined with brocade couches. They were for invited guests, those hot enough or famous enough to increase the box's cachet. They were not allowed to leave the table's perimeter. Booths lined the wall. To sit there cost $5,000. A bottle of vodka started at 500 If you were a man, after you ordered a bottle, girls would descend on your table and drink half the liquor. They might have been paid by the house. At the box, customers were sheep meant to be shorn."
0: The Box was a nightclub in Manhattan, where Molly was hired to draw promotional posters and sketch performers.
1: Molly writes and talks a lot about her sketchpad being the key to open locked doors. And although it's quite different from the work she would do in high-security prisons, Molly says she would have never been allowed into these clubs otherwise.
2: I was not pretty enough to get in, I was not rich enough to get in, I was not connected enough to get in. The few times that I like tried to stand online and be allowed to get in, I, no, it just wasn't happening. <laughs> Later I had a very close friend, uh, Buck Angel. He is um, a trans man, though he he would say that he's just a man now, uh, who um, does porn and who did this amazing macho hot act at the box. And he's just like the most supportive dude. And he really pushed for me to meet the owners. And after that, through through a bunch of stuff that you can read about in the book, I got to be their house artist. Was there one prior
0: to you? Or were you the first of them? I made up that
2: position. I think I've made up most of my positions. There are several ways to be successful in the world. One of them is just to be the best at a position for which there are a small number of slots. A classic thing would be being the class valedictorian. There's only one class valedictorian. You do that by getting the best grades. There's a path, uh, there's an external authority who chooses that, and you're competing directly with other people. I'm just not like that. I'm I'm not good at that. I was always too diffuse, too rebellious, too lazy in a lot of ways to ever compete directly with anyone for a singular position. So the other thing that you do is you make something else where it's only you, and it is just your skills and what you're good at, and then you make that thing shiny enough and interesting enough, and that the world takes notice of it. And then they think like, "Wow, I want someone to be the house artist for my nightclub. I want someone to have this amazing sound design feminist podcast that never something like something that never existed before." Instead of uh, catering to someone else's wants, you make them want something new.
0: I feel like you know so much about so much of the world. Do you read? I mean, before you go, before you travel somewhere, do you just immerse yourself in everything you possibly can?
2: Yeah, and I always feel like I'm an ignoramus. I never feel like I know enough. And um, yeah, I just I read. You just read a lot. That's that's the only answer. And you talk to people. Like you, hopefully, you have friends who are from the place that you're traveling to, and you, you talk to them. And I found that one of the best questions you can ask people is, "What does the media get wrong?"
0: When she's working in the Middle East, Molly is embarrassed to see most Western journalists unable to speak any Arabic, especially while all Arabic journalists speak great English. So for the last eight months, and with shame as her motivator,
2: Molly has made studying Arabic a part of her daily routine. So I wake up, uh, usually around 9 or 10, unless I've been on a bit of a bender the night before, Um, make myself some coffee. And then I've sort of gotten into this ritual of um, studying my Arabic in the mornings. I find it very pleasurable because it's utterly unlike anything I do and it's just like, it's a really hard language, it's like a really, how do I put this, like it's an, it's an intellectual language is the way to put it, like it's just really interestingly structured, everything comes from roots, I, I love it, it's like such a cool language and then I, I look at what I have to do. Right now I have to like churn out a lot of fucking illustrations. A lot of times at night I'll have like dinner with someone, if I have energy in me I'll come back home and I'll like work till about 2am, if I don't I'll have some whiskey and fall asleep and kiss my boyfriend.
1: And how important is balancing, um, you mentioned your boyfriend, but also your friends and your community? Because we've only talked
2: about your work. Yeah, it's really, it's always a challenge, especially when I was doing my book, I felt like I was the worst friend in the world. I just kind of disappeared. And I was like such a bitch to live with, too. Like. I- I swear it's so different than art. With 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 art, I can like talk to my mom on the phone. I'm like we're like going in and out of it. With writing, I just devolved into this like hideous troll. And Fred would come up to me and he'd be like, "I love you," and I'd be like, "Ah, get away from me! I'm working. You ruined my flow." And you know, I, I he's a he's a wonderful wonderful man that I'm very lucky to be with. Yeah, it's always hard, and I always kind of feel like I'm failing. But I mean, my work comes first. And in, in two of the interviews I've heard.
1: And then I'm sure they didn't mean this in a bad way, but they seemed surprised that you were writing a memoir this young. And I thought that was odd because there's plenty of memoirs out there by men who write who have one successful company and they'll write a memoir at age 20
2: and it's called a business book. It's not called a memoir. Interviewers are fucking condescending, man. I did an interview uh, with this big news channel recently and he asked me, what do your parents think of what you do? And I'm like I'm a fucking I'm like nearly 32. I'm a I'm a fucking like 32-year-old nearly 32-year-old woman, you know, who covers some kind of fucked up places and I'm a fucking grown-ass adult and you're asking me what my parents think of what I do like has any man I ever asked and I and I asked. I asked guys, has has anyone ever asked you in an interview like what do your parents think and no, I've never heard this. There's just a way that um a lot of media has of trying to trivialize you and trying to make you seem younger and smaller.
1: Of all the work Molly does, 95% of it comes to her. The rest, she pitches.
2: But it wasn't like that at all at the start. It was really slow going at the start. Um, It's really hard. You have to be really persistent. Um, So much of it comes down to who you know. Anyone who tries to um, dance around that fact is fucking full of shit. It's like people hire their networks um that is by the way how institutional like racism and sexism gets so entrenched it's very often not because the person is like i am a racist it's like i only feel comfortable with white dudes and all my friends are white dudes because that's who i feel comfortable with and i only hire my friends so these are all white dudes if you have a thing and like it's what you want to do like if you want to be a writer or want to be an artist. These are really unpractical things. Uh, most people won't be able to succeed. People who love you very much will probably tell you uh, you shouldn't do this. And they're, they're speaking out of love. Like, they're not trying to crush your dreams. Like, they, they're actually, like, quite you probably will fail, you know. But um, you just have to ignore those people. You just have to sort of put like your fucking sweat and blood into it. And you also have to just be really skeptical and rigorous because almost everyone who's involved in the actual business of cultural industries, even though they might be lovely and nice people, there are just parts of those industries and the way they function that are really fucked up and that are really about bilking money out of the people who are actually producing the culture. I think it's really important to make your own name for yourself that is independent of any particular platform. Um, And I really think it's very important to actually speak about money and to speak about power because those are the things that uh, control so much of our lives. I don't believe that you have to, like, fucking love your job. Like, I don't believe, like, a fucking waitress or a fucking marketer or anyone has to love their job. I do, I do not believe that, like, your fucking love is um, essential for you, like, functioning, you know. I, I don't believe that. However, if you're going to work in something as fucking improbable as, like, wanting to be a fine artist, you have to love it. Like, because and I'm not saying you have to love it as a moral obligation. I'm just like, why are you doing it otherwise? Like, surely it's not money. It's not ease. It's not, it's not I mean, it's nothing else. Like, what possible reason would you have to do it except this bizarre addiction that you have? Have. and if you don't have that addiction then just don't do it because it'll just make you miserable and you'll never produce anything good so so do something else why do you do it why do you continue day after day like what because because I, I can't otherwise it's just how I interface with the world there's like nothing else to me.
0: Thank you to the charming and mysterious Molly Crabapple for inviting us up into her magical apartment and sharing her story with us.
1: Drawing Blood, her memoir published by HarperCollins, is out today. Molly has been working on this thing for two years, and we got our paws on it back in the fall. Trust us, you don't want to miss it. Find it on Amazon today and read it over the holidays. And visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find more links to her work, the stop-motion videos we talked about, and if she'll be stopping in your city on her book tour. This show is a product of Slate's Panoply
0: Network. And this episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg. And Elaine Sheldon.
1: And sound designs by Billy Werasnik.
0: And we'd like to wish Christine Cover, our dear friend, and Hannah behind all of our She Does Artwork, a very, very happy birthday. We love you and all that you do. The incredible music you heard in this episode is by French composer and musician Cecile Schott, widely known as Colleen. Join us next week for a conversation with her, which will be the final episode of 2015.
1: And as always, thank you to our partner, Filmmaker Magazine, and our friends over at Independent Music News. Keep your ears open for our 2015 mixtape we're making together.
0: Thank you for listening to She Does.
1: My stomach is making crazy sounds because we had beans for dinner.